You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Hello, welcome back. Delighted you're here with me. It's episode 86 of Grow Yourself Up. And today I'm joined by Kemi Amije. I'm going to tell you all about her. But before I do that, um, if you would like to get the journal prompts that go alongside all the episodes of Grow Yourself Up, please go and sign up either on my website, which is kathcunahan.com or on Instagram. So go and sign up and the newsletter is called Nurture, Heal, Grow, and you'll get all the journal prompts. And also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please can you leave a rating and a review? You can leave a written review on Apple Podcasts. Okay, thanks. So let me tell you about Kemi. So Kemi Amija is a registered psychotherapist and clinical supervisor working with children and families. She's been doing that for over 15 years. She's also a trainer and speaker with her specialist subjects being cultural competence, racial identity, racial trauma, and anti-racist practices in education. Kemi champions inclusive mental health for children and young people and states that support for young people should include a consideration of the child's context, culture, and identity. Kemi believes in preventing the onset of significant mental health difficulties in children and young people by fostering an environment that's child-centered and fosters connection and belonging. She works with organizations to support them to develop anti-racist practices and a trauma-informed approach. Kemi passionately believes that good mental health is the foundation for success across all areas of life. She has a special passion for and extensive experience working in schools and with families. Kemi is a black woman in a leadership position and has both lived experience and psychological understanding of the impact of navigating a predominantly white workspace. As a result, she's passionate about providing awareness and tools to support and advance black women in leadership roles without sacrificing their mental health and well-being. Kemi's passion is normalizing talking about mental health and ensuring we are all investing in our mental health as we would our physical health. She's been featured in BBC Bite Size, Huffington Post UK and the Irish Times. And she was the resident therapist for the BBC docuseries Mimi on a Mission. She has worked with many organizations, including the NHS, the Anna Freud Centre and King's College. 
And all of these, um, all of Kemi's contact details will be in the show notes. You can connect with her on um, kemiamija.com. And um, she's on Twitter, on Instagram, and on LinkedIn. And all of her handles are Therapy with Kemi. And that'll all be on the um, in the show notes. What I really appreciated um, in this was when um, I appreciated a lot of what Kemi said, but one of the things she talked about, about fawning, and she talked about how sometimes she even fawns in the face of microaggressions. And that really shows how automatic fawning is and how we do it for our own safety. And she, um, she explained how she, how she kind of recovers from that and how she is, has changed her behavior around that. And I think there's so much wisdom in what she offers us, um, around how we can shift away from fawning and it's not it doesn't involve getting it perfect all of the time so i hope that you get a lot from this episode and let's dive in hi kemi thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today i'm really delighted to have you on thank you i'm glad to be here so tell us a bit about yourself and your path to motherhood and about your kids Right. So where do I begin? So I grew up in Nigeria. I came to England when I was 10. Um, and I, I think that's an important, important part to share because I think growing up as a, a female Nigerian, yes, the expectation is you go to school, you get your degrees, you get your qualifications, but more importantly, you get married and you have kids. So if, for me, it was never being a mother was something that I knew was automatically going to happen. Um, and it wasn't until I got married that I started to think about actually, right, and now that this motherhood is coming, coming, what, like, trying to kind of psychologically prepare for it and, and having that conversation with my husband about when and the right timing. So I am a planner. We did plan our kids. Um, and I am, I say this with a lot of privilege. I'm one of the few I know or, or that actually things went according to plan. That's not always the case for every, for every person. And I, I know that and I yeah. did that and I'm grateful, um, for that. Um, so we decided to wait two years, um, into our marriage and we started trying, after two years so my daughter is nine years old um and i wanted a three to four year age gap and again fortunate and privileged and luck or god whatever you believe in um that worked out quite well um and then I had my son who was five years old i never imagined i was going to be a mother of boys when I was growing up ah. <laughs> I was going to be a mother of girls i always pictured when i pictured motherhood girls i can do girls i understand girl girls i'm a girl myself um and my children are very very different in every shape side like whichever way you can look at it they are so different they're opposites um so whereas my daughter is the extrovert the confident one um the very vocal doesn't hold back very creative very expressive and my son is the opposite he's like the introvert so parenting two very very different children has been a journey yeah it's been very interesting and they certainly keep me on my toes <laughs> yeah i can yes i can imagine those that's very interesting ages nine and five and tell us because I think what you said about being a Nigerian woman living in London or living in England, um, like how has that impacted your experience of motherhood? It's very interesting because I think a lot of us parent how we were parented, unless we make, we make a conscious effort 
to do to do different or we're kind of actively working on it. So I was very much inherited by a Nigerian mother. And so all the cultural expectations and the things that come with um, being a Nigerian um, is was in my internal parent is what kind of what I internalize about parenting. And what are those, what are those, um, like when you say that, what is, what is a Nigerian mother? What are the kind of expectations? And respect is a big thing. Respect is like, the first and foremost and respect is how actually Nigerian mothers show love um they feed you that's how they show love they might not say I love you but they'll make sure you've eaten um uh, and even as recently as um a few weeks ago I was talking about this with a friend that's also Nigerian and when a parent calls you you say yes mom you don't just say yeah what or part like it's just like that respect and the way my daughter just flipped me is like yeah and I'm like (laughs) gosh if my mother can speak So those little things like respect is a big thing. Um, and this idea of just relaxing again, I like this idea of always being busy. Children are meant to be doing something, whether you're reading your book or doing your homework or cleaning the house or tidying up your room or learning to cook so that you can be a good wife. Yeah. All of those things. Um, again, and then I see my nine year old daughter who is living her best life, not actually (laughs) feeling it, but that internalized Nigerian parent is still there. So, um, so there's always a conflict and I do make a joke with my with my ch- children. So actually as a threat in a joking way, I'm like, do you want to bring out the Nigerian mother? Do you want the Nigerian mother? Because <laughs> they've heard stories. I've told them about my parent, the way I was parented and what grandma used to do. And they don't believe it's the person because, you know, you know, parents, when they turn to grandparents, like, they're much like, softer. My- amazing (laughs) they're like what grandma used to do and I was like yep that grandma used to do that to me so um so the Nigerian mother is very much in my head but I don't think I parent that way because obviously I've been here since I was 10 I'm a therapist um I'd like to think I've learned a few (laughs) skills not to parent my children in the way that I was parented, but it's there in the background. And how did you, because I think we're, we're busy on this podcast a lot with, because um, you're absolutely right that when we haven't, when we don't um, kind of interrogate our own um, parenting style, we just do what was done to us. And how did you, mm. um, like, how do you work that out with your husband, first of all? And how did you travel that journey of kind of noticing your triggers and um, say, like, if your mom just, uh, sorry, if your daughter just goes, yeah, instead of going, yes, mom, like, <laughs> do you, how do you tend to yourself in those moments so that you don't shout at her and say, you need to be respectful or something? Because, well, I'll start with it, with how I work out with my husband. So my husband is also very Nigerian and my husband is probably more Nigerian than I am because he didn't grow up in this country. He only came to England after we got married. Um, so he's very, very Nigerian. But one of the things we have, um, we have, well, we still have ongoing conversations conversations about his values and what's important to us what kind of children slash adults what kind of individuals do we want our children to be um so we kind of think bigger picture ultimately I want them to be confident I want them to kind of genuinely thrive in whatever way that means to them yeah whatever way success thriving means to them so we are on the same page in that on that so in terms of our values and our vision when we talk about what we imagine our, our kids to be like in the future when we talk about when we are older and retired and we're visiting our kids what what, the kind of homes we want to visit or the kind of like 
young people we want to spend our time with, um, we're on the same page. So our destination is the same. How we might get there might not be the same. Um, we do have different opinions because my husband is, as I said, very Nigerian. So he's still very much, he does expect his dad, for example. Yeah. Um, and I, I pick my battles. So, um, in the very early stages of our parenthood, I felt like I had to guide my husband to parent, like to parent the way I parented. And I was like, actually, that's your relationship with your kids. You, 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 you both at the time was just my daughter. They're going to have to figure out their relationship as father and daughter. And I, not to interfere with that as because I can't I can't interfere with that yeah. um as much as I can so for me how do I I'm not really triggered with the yes mom I think for me it's it's my my kind of overarching thing is picking picking my battles is it important to them or is it important to me and who is it more important to there's some there's some battles like for example I don't know when they were in toddler stages and they wanted the red cup and only the red <laughs> cup and and I'm just like, it's just a cop. Uh, that is more important to them. So that's my pick your battles. Who is it more important to in this moment? Um, yes, it's silly to me in my adult brain that, or in my busy mom brain that you want just a red cop. But as a two year old, it's really important to you. Fine. So I, I'm always, and that changes. I'm always constantly picking my battles. The recent battle right now is the nine year old wanting to wear a crop top in January. <laughs> because we've uh, discovered crop tops um and i'm like health cold winter like i'm constantly like in my head thinking is it important like who is it more important to right now and in the long run what like what does it serve uh what purpose does it serve what does this communication serve so and for me that particular communication is about body autonomy and being able to pick her own clothes because i've spent she's she's away we spent so long picking her own clothes and helping her decide what to wear she's like actually i have body autonomy so actually i realized the more i give her choices so i'm like you can't wear a crop top or you can wear between this and that because it's winter i'm not just stopping you from wearing a crop top because i'm a terrible mom but it's just because it's winter yeah save it for for summer um but when i realized that actually it's about body autonomy and she wants that independent and that choice then then actually it makes it easier to um to take my little rants so and my little like because i'm human i'm going to be annoyed and frustrated and have all those emotions but take that elsewhere whether I'm taking it to my partner or whether I'm taking it to friends or whether I'm comforting myself in realizing that it's not about me I think often when our pair our y- young people and children act out we, we we can take it so so personally um it's really hard not to take it personally I'm like it's like you are you're sent here to test me this is yes this is this is <laughs> this is what you're here for for actually it's really about us which is actually um comforting and annoying at the same time i think it's really comforting to think it's really about us but sometimes you do your ego is like really it's not about me um but i think you've touched on such a brilliant point there because um i notice sometimes i have a similar version to that where i go in my head, I bottom out what's happening for me. And I'm like, why are you doing this to me? Like, that's what happens. Yeah. And that's my inner child screaming, why are you doing this to me? And it's not that they're doing anything to me. It's that they're triggering me. And there's lots of growth opportunities for me there. Absolutely. But um, I think there's so much tending to do to ourselves there in terms of our inner child. And if we have a very active inner child to, to not um, go down that path, what you just said about um, 
almost an ego path or the, or letting the inner child run the, run the world of like, um, why are you doing this to me? Or you were sent out to test me because then we can put that onto them and then they land up caring for us, you know, and really tending mm. to our inner child in a way. Um, and so I love your, cause that, that thing about body autonomy, it sounds like that's one of your values of coming back to, yeah. um, and that's such a, that's kind of having those overarching principles is to, so helpful to ground us. Um, mm-hmm. because there's so much, there's like a myriad of decisions to make every day. And there's so much decision fatigue actually in parenting around like, can they wear across like da, 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 da. And my own daughter loves to wear tights. And I always think tights are not such a good idea. I think she should wear leggings or socks on me. And I really have to just welcome in the tights, you know, because otherwise. Yeah. There, there's a battle and then, then there's so much control that we can put on them. And you get into this push and pull rather than hopefully a discussion. Um, and what I find is that um, from so keeping that body autonomy theme and the kind of clothes, I find that my daughter actually mirrors me more. Um, so like when I have a big event, I, I didn't realise I was doing this. Honestly, children can honestly be mirrors to your behaviour. I didn't realise the way I get, rid- get ready for events because I just get ready for events. Um, well, it wasn't until my daughter started doing it. I was like, oh gosh, she's doing what I do. Cause I, I will literally have three or four outfits laid out on the bed. I'll try them out. I will get my husband. I'll be like, which one do you think? And, and really making a big event out of it. And then when she's got a birthday party, I find her, I find her doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes that's the way in which I kind of resolve certain things whereby I'm like, okay, if I tweak my behavior, and think out loud what I would be thinking internally anyway. Um, so it might be, oh, I really like this crop top. I really want to wear this crop top, but oh, am I going to be cold? And I'm just saying that to myself for an outfit. I'm not, <laughs> so sometimes you guys planning ahead. Um, I'm not always that good, but I think sometimes they're mirroring us. Um, and even in the way me and my husband talk to each other, they are not, I try not to get them to see, um, we're human. And so there will be days where we're in battle and with, when that pull and that tug of war. Yeah. So if they're not seeing that, but they're seeing disagreement, they're seeing healthy conversations around disagreements. They're seeing, they're seeing that role model. Then hopefully they're not picking up on that. But again, they, they're young people they are still and I think that's what one of the things we forget in parenting because we are so in and like you said there's so many things going on and so many decisions happening yeah that in the moment you forgot that you we forget that these are not emotionally mature young people yet they are growing emotionally so like they're I mean, I used to be a teacher many, 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 many years ago. And one of my favorite things as a teacher, I, come, I cringe when I say it. And I was like, use your words. Um, <laughs> sometimes they don't have I their know. words. Literally, they, that part of their brain has shut down. Um, and I, I still find that, I mean, I, I really, I don't think I say it out loud, but definitely internally, that internal voice comes in. Like, Why are they behaving like this? Why can't they just use their words? Um, but they can't no, sometimes. They can't. They, 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 they genuinely can't. Um, so I guess it's reminding myself that I, at least on the outside, I'm the adult. And you're right, there's, there's an element of looking after your inner child. In order, If I didn't look after my inner child, I wouldn't be able to remind myself I'm the adult. And there's the psychological and emotional looking after your inner child. But, and I know, but there's also the practical, which sounds like the cliche. No, it's not. But the things are the easiest things to do so I know for example if I haven't slept like 
I just don't have like sleep is my kryptonite. I need my sleep. Like if I yeah, if I haven't slept, I am just not able I don't have the capacity to think of my emotions and your emotions at the same time so on a very practical level I try and work on my sleep and even my children know the difference um, yeah and on the weekends I like that's non-negotiable I'm lucky and I'm actually I don't want to say lucky because that's feeding into the patriarchy I was about to say I'm lucky that my husband lets me lie in I'm not <laughs> no, lucky no you're not lucky <laughs> yes we want to smash the patriarchy here that's, that's just what happens <laughs> but I but they, my family know that I need my sleep and that's what makes me a decent human being. Um, so I need the lions. Um, he me too. doesn't. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So um, there's a practical and a psychological element, um, and and they have to go hand in hand. I I actually prioritize one over the other um, because I think they both go hand in hand. We we've all been there with the with the sleep deprived young child. We know what that looks like. The sleep deprived, hungry, hangry young child. Yeah. So if we know the things we do to take care of our, our physical children. So we need to do similar for our inner child and for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I so agree. And I think that sleep is one of those things that's particularly hard. I have experienced, well, and lots of people I know have experienced it as being really hard to actually prioritize because um, there's always that feeling of, I want to get more things done at night. And um, I haven't had any time to myself and I've really had to, I've made some shifts actually just this year about how we actually plan our evenings and when we have supper and how we do bed and bath because we were going to bed way too late. And um, it feels like a real gift to get more sleep, actually. Um, a real, real gift. And I loved what you said earlier when you were talking about, you were talking about respect. And then you talked about um, how, no, there was something that you said about your mum and how like how have you um how has your own therapy training helped you in your parenting or or has it been actually a disadvantage because i think it sometimes can be a double edged sword Oh gosh, do you know what? So I'm one of those, I think I'm rare, but because I, I haven't met anybody in a similar situation than me, I trained straight out of uni, so I went into my psychotherapy training at nineteen i i mean <laughs> and i i on my course there was I, th I think the closest person to my age was at least a decade older than me. Um, so, so in many ways, my therapy training didn't help me with my parenting because it, it was so long ago. And I don't think, again, without revealing my age, over a decade <laughs> ago or however long ago, that course was very culturally sensitive, competent. Co like there was, I felt like I was just going through, it felt clinical. It felt like I was just, very academic and I would say and I've said this um, many in many situations where I actually think training to be a therapist for me it, I compared it to learning to drive like it was after I qualified that the real therapy and the real training and the real like you know, absolutely like, it's just the real learning began so I was doing all the CPDs and, and I was kind of um, complimenting the foundation that I had um, and it was in networking and meeting other kind of similar therapists outside of my training that I, I grew as a therapist but what has helped me in my parenting um, is the actual practice of therapy like working with other children um, it's my own personal therapy that I went on beyond the mandatory one because um, I kind of went because I think for me culturally 
like seeking therapy. Even though I knew very young, I wanted to be a therapist. I also knew that it wasn't for me. I thought I was like the whole, I'm going to help other people, but I'm fine. I'm perfect. I don't need any, any help. So I will go on this mandatory counseling and do this mandatory therapy and just kind of do enough to get by. Yeah. Um, and I think it was roughly four years. Yeah, three or four years post-qualification, post-finishing the mandatory therapy that I re-engaged in therapy again as a choice rather than a mandatory thing. And I think that combined with working with young people and families is what helped me with my parenting because I think, I still think, after many, many years of doing that, I honestly think it's a privilege to work in such an intimate way with young people where you get to see their internal world, where they get to kind of talk about their experiences. And and it's so all those years of making all sorts of difference with a range uh, of children with a range of difficulties, but an exposure to the internal world and hearing how they kind of inter- internalize or externalize um, the things that are happening around them and their family dynamics is, I, I think, is what prepared me for parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think what I am good at is very much both professionally and personally is leading from a child-centered approach. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I very much keep the child at the core of whatever I'm doing in my decision-making process, both at work and in my, in, in, at home. Um, it's not always easy at home. Much harder at home than at work, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I absolutely haven't had that as a parent. My mom is a fantastic mom, but culturally speaking, we don't do it. We don't do a child-centered approach. It's very much an adult-centered approach. The child fits into the adult's life yes. rather than the other way around. Um, so it definitely goes against the grain. Um, for me to kind of be like, my child is at the core of whatever decision making. And it's, it's been problematic in ways for the wider families. It's not problematic in our home because my husband gets it again. Yeah. Back to what I said about the conversation about our, the bigger picture and our values. We're on the stage on that. Um, and I can't even think of an example, but in terms of thinking about family gatherings or family events, when I'm like, no, that that's not going to work for my child. And people are like, what do you mean that's not going to work for my child? Um, sometimes I'm actually creative about my reasons for saying no, because it's just easier. I know it's not going to work for my child. Do they need to know it's not going to work for my child? No, I can just say, no, thanks. No, we can't that come. Work yeah. For it. That's it. That's the end. That's the end of the conversation. Um, did I answer your question? I feel like I went off on no, a No, 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 you did. You absolutely did. Um, and it's so, I think what you, because I think that that's often where the issues come, that the intergenerational piece when the parents are commenting on what we're doing and about um, like we're spoiling them or we're going to ruin them or we're not being strict enough or, um, and um, this kind of really, this breaking cycles requires a lot of um, strength actually and and um, conviction. Yeah. And, um, but I also hear, in your um um because I, I you talked I've, I've on one of your stories once you talked about how um Nigerian parents are very critical and about how um no one could ever criticize you well no one nothing that anyone would ever say would kind of touch you in that way because your mom's probably already said that and how do you kind of um does that mean that you have a very strong inner critic now how have you kind of made peace with that or stop criticizing yourself actually I don't know whether I've stopped criticizing myself. Um, gosh, no, I don't think I've done that. Um, how I've made peace with that is because again, it, it boils down to having an understanding of who you are and also having an understanding of who your parents are. Um, and that required me going back to therapy. I, I didn't come, come, kind of come 
<laughs> come to that realization myself. But in recent years and in, in, in engaging with a therapist, um, seeing my mom as an individual first rather than my parent, um, that's really helpful. And understanding the culture, the culture behind that. So it wasn't critique just for critique's sake. It wasn't abusive. Yeah. It wasn't, um, it certainly didn't feel abusive. Um, it was, it genuinely was constructive feedback. They just have an amazing way. <laughs> <laughs> they have an amazing way with words and amazing delivery. And I can't even think of an example now. It's so annoying. If it comes to me, I'll, I'll give an example. Um, so my mom, and I'm an only child, um, so for context and background, and it's been me and my mom. My mom's a single parent. I'm an only child. Um, so it's been me and my mom for, for my entire life. And my mom, my biggest champion, oh. where she's like that tough coach. She is like, she will tell you when she, you've done well and that will last five seconds but she will also tell you all the areas you need to develop <laughs> and that will last five hours so I get I do get the positive feedback she's like yeah yeah you're well done but because we don't need to work on that let's focus on what else you need to work on and she's definitely of the I know her value is that she will I need to make my child tough for the world that that exists so she yeah. she felt one of her things was to make me tough she felt that one of her things was to um leave me ready and prepared for the tough world so she very much saw the world as a tough world um and she was equipping me with skills and resilience to survive the tough world so i get it like completely like from her given her experiences and her childhood and her culture and her background yeah i got it i was like okay fine that's what you were doing uh so that's how i kind of resolve it uh, and it, and if it, now it's so much easier because when she is still being my mom because she hasn't changed i'm like mom ouch that hurts and she's like what what did i say yeah um, and i'm like oh uh, you said and i'm i'm giving i'm giving it back to her obviously i could never have done that as a child um so yeah i think does that answer your question I yeah like yeah absolutely I think that it's so, um, because I hear how, um, how compassionate you are to her actually and how accepting you are of her, her own context and how it's, it sounds really driven actually in a way to keep you safe. Um, that. And her safe. I think it's about her safety actually. Yeah. And about how we need to be a certain way to fit in because there's so much of that piece around culturally we need to fit in. Um, and we need to like not to be too different to the neighbors or something. Um, and I also, uh, what you said earlier about, um, how you were never allowed to, you didn't say you were never allowed to rest, but you said that you were always having to, to be sort of doing something or, um, kind of um, keeping busy. Yes. And that's so pervasive in our, in our, in our culture generally in Western culture. Um, and that idea of not like sleeping late or not being lazy in any way. How do you deal with that now? Do you know what? That's the hardest thing. That's very much still an ongoing battle. Um, that's a Achilles heel of mine. Resting and doing nothing. That feels so foreign to me, so different. Mm. Um, I think it is a combination of being raised by my mother and the way I've been raised, but it's also a combination of being a black woman in England in a predominantly white country. Yeah. Um, and this internalized idea of, um, working twice as hard to get, and, and that's not even internalized. That's a fact. Like when you kind of look at it research wise and evidence based wise. Um, so it's hard. It's really hard. And it, off the back of that conversation that Taraji P. Henson had about kind of, she's not paying, 
paid equal pay yeah. and how hard it is for a black woman. And I would, I can't remember, but then somebody else was like, because I got, I went down the, the rabbit hole of that conversation. Um, and somebody else was like, I'm a black woman in England. Of course I have multiple jobs. Like I don't just have the one job. Um, and I remember I was, uh, I was at a networking event or some course. I can't remember. We all had different titles and different, and it was, I noticed when all the black people were introducing themselves, they had multi hats. They had many hats. Um, and I have many hats. I do, I do consultancy. I do training. I do da 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 da. Um, so that is really, really hard. Rest is something I'm actively trying to work on. And one of the ways I do it, or one of the ways that I know I that motivates me today is thinking about what my child is saying. Because I said, as I said earlier, my children really hold the mirror up to my behavior. Yeah. Um, and I need to see them. Like, they need to physically see me rest. So on weekdays, I'm actually not very good at it. But on weekends, I try to have just literally, if they see me just doing, on the sofa, doing nothing, mm. Even if it's just for an hour, I need that to role model that for them. Because again, when we're checking in, I, I told you how busy our weekends are. We're going from A to B to da-da-da. Uh, so I'm actively naming that. But we need to rest. We need to stop. Yeah, that's. I don't have a nice neat answer for that because I'm still working on that. But rest is something that I think culturally, socially, emotionally, psychologically, Black women haven't been afforded. No. Um, and, it's not and safe. When you, um it's not safe to rest. Um, and when you even broaden that kind of within the, the capitalist society we live in as well, it's just like rest is just why are you resting? Yeah. I think, um, have you read uh, My Grandmother's Hands? Yes, I have. It's beautiful. It's a while ago. I had to, so I have to refresh my memory about it. But yeah, I have. It's great. It's very beautiful. And I think, I think what he talks about how we've internalized because I mean, the, the kind of what white bodies have done to black bodies and then what, what white bodies continue to do to themselves and what black bodies then do to themselves. There's so much. And I think that rest and overworking is one of the ways that this plays out so much that. Absolutely. Um, and it's so, it's so damaging and there's so much kind of, uh, reparation and fixing that needs to be done in this space. But, um, mm -hmm. Like in terms of really, because I mean, I think from an agency point of view, we really have to give permission in our own lives. Like you really have to give yourself that permission because no one's going to come and do that. Um, but it, it kind of, um, I guess it can feel quite scary because it has been so unsafe. And I think that that's really, that is in the DNA. I agree. So it takes lots of like conscious effort and it, but it's, it's again about the inner child because if I was grown, if I've grown up in a household where you had to be busy, um, you had to be doing something. So from my formative years, um, that's literally just, there wasn't just this idea of me chilling watching TV. Yeah. I'd like, well, you're, you're always doing something. And if you're chilling watching TV, it's almost usually, I, I actually remember it's when my mom was getting ready. So again, it was just me and her. So when she kind of finished getting me ready, she was like, okay, right, you sit there, you watch TV. I'm going to have my shower. I'm going to have my bath. And then we're out the house. So it was, it was a transitionary thing rather than a, actually, this is intentional. You're going to sit and watch TV. Um, so yeah. If that's something that I've internalized on it, and again, generational, what you're talking about, referring back to the generational trauma, um, grandma's hands, that it's literally in our DNA, DNA and it's passed on and passed on. So it's going to take years. It's going to take time. It's not something I can just wake up and say, okay, I'm going to start resting, but I am trying to, I'm being intentional about it. Um, so yeah. 
I'm actually coincidentally, there's going to be a shift in my work part patterns from April because of that. I'm like, okay, I can't keep saying this. I can't keep taking on all the jobs and saying yes to everything and, and having what I call a day job and my private practice. So I basically work very long hours because I have a full-time job and then I have a private practice, but I will be leaving my full-time job in Easter. Um, I'm concentrating on my private, <laughs> I'm concentrating on my private practice, but that was nine months in the making. It took so long for me to even just like, it started as a seed. And I was like, you can't keep doing this because I literally would finish my nine to five, come home, have online clients, do this, plan plan workshops, plan that, in the, as well as parenting. And my children are like, just seeing this mom that's just kind of running around like a headless chicken, just busy, multitasking. And even if I do it well on Sundays, because I do, I do think I'm somebody that thrives off that busyness and I, it's quite yeah buzzy. Like I, 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 it doesn't help that I do it well. I think if I didn't do it well, then I'd have a, that concrete feedback that this is not helpful. But I, 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 I have feedback that I do it well, not just for myself, from other people. So I'm like, well, it's fine. I'm doing it well. I'm managing it all and I'm doing everything. But I'm like, just because I'm doing it well doesn't mean it has to be done. Um, so yeah, that took that. And that's a real powerful realization because I think that, um, I identify what you say about being busy and being able to multitask and kind of jumping between things and everything. And it's, and that in itself gives us its own, um, high essentially, um, from kind of getting things done. But what, what prompted you, like, apart from feeling like a chicken with a head cut off, did you start to notice that you couldn't sleep or like, were you starting to get, approaching some you know what it's a it's a, it was a lots of little seeds um and i have to be mindful of what i say because i don't want to focus too much on the organization but it, one of the organizational decision was kind of what it means to be one of the very few so i was the first black woman in leadership in that organization so i'll let you jump to your own conclusions about what that journey <laughs> is like in a predominantly um white organization um that's predominantly hard uh, yeah it, it was it wasn't easy and then so i was there for a year by myself and then they had another black woman in leadership and and now slowly there's slightly more but it's still a very small percentage um and navigating that um and again it's something i saw online that just accurately summarized my experience where somebody said the work isn't hard the the actual job isn't hard i've been doing pupil well-being and young people me- mental health for years for over a decade uh, I, it's something i com- I'm, i can confidently yeah. do but the work isn't hard but the being in the organization started to feel harder and harder i started to feel exhausted i'm like but the work isn't hard. What is this feeling? Um, and then I realized it's the many interactions I am having that requires emotional labor, that requires me to um, swallow, or that requires me to challenge on some, because I'm always internally like, do I challenge this or do I let it go? Picking my battles and all all that mental labor, emotional labor. So organizationally, it was that um, and then around that time also my daughter's school was doing a project on kind of racism I can't remember what they called it but they were talking about racism and she was talking about the experiences and um, and she was telling me what her teacher does and I always have, have, have to add my own little piece in of course <laughs> um, oh, teach of a woman and, and one of the things I said to her was that because she said a lot. And then I was like, oh, that's amazing. And that's fantastic. I'm glad you're learning all of that. But one of the things I want you to know is that racism is not your problem. And she was like, huh? And I was like, racism is not your problem. 
you didn't invent racism. You are not the perpetrator of racism. You hopefully are not going to be the victim of racism, but who knows? It's 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 the world we live in. Um, so I don't want you to walk around thinking racism is your it's your identity, is your problem, mm-hmm. it's something you, like and and it started with that conversation and, and then the conversation evolved to something else. And I talked about her looking after herself and black joy and and all of the things that I realized that in that moment, I wasn't living. Yeah. So it was it was telling my daughter all these wonderful things and not saying that these are the things that you stand up to. You don't accept that. You don't do that. You're more than that. You did it. And then as I said that, I was like, oh, well, I'm not. I guess my inner child was like, hello, hi, <laughs> remember me? <laughs> um, so, and that, as I said, that was months ago. So then it's, and it started in my head. Um, I didn't tell anybody about it, not even my husband. And I was just like, how much of it can I take? But once I'd made that decision, it was like seeing the world through a different lens, like I'd put a different pair of glasses on. And with every interaction or with every decision, or, or as the weeks went by, I was like, is it really worth it? Does this align with my bigger va- well, work values and work yeah. purpose? And vision? Does this align with the kind of mother I want to show my daughter? Um, and even like, so occasionally my daughter gets to go to my, my husband's work, like for childcare reasons, when we, and, and my husband works for himself. And she loves it. Going to dad's work is like Christmas to her. She has, and my son, sorry, see the difference in children. They're both there, by the way, but my son is so quiet. <laughs> I have <laughs> daughter all the time. Honestly, he's just like an absorber. And then now and again, he, he says a one line now, we're like, Oh, you were there? You were paying attention? Yeah. <laughs> Probably all the wisdom that bursts oh. from his mouth. Honestly, he's literally like a sponge and you think he's not taking anything in and then he'll come up with a one-liner and you're like, wow. <laughs> like, So he is there. So he was anyway. So for both of them going to my husband's office, is like Christmas. It's like they love it. They come back full of stories. And I was like, if I mean, practically I couldn't take my daughter to work, but if I could... I wonder what she would say and what she would see. And and I tried to kind of see work through her lens. And I was like, yeah, no, I want also to be part of something that I'm proud of that I can like, yeah, this is what I'm doing. This like, come here and see this person. And I just knew that my daughter wouldn't leave my workplace with that same feeling right now. Um, so that was one of another, I mean, there was many things. It's like a little domino effect after another. And, and then, yeah, I just made a decision. Wow. Congratulations. Cause that sounds like a really <laughs> powerful and loving decision for you. And I think what you were talking about, about that you have to pick battles at work, mm-hmm. that it's so costly for you. Mm-hmm. Um, being a black woman in a predominantly white organization and probably predominantly male as well, mm. that um, kind of all the microaggressions that you must face every day and, and all the dealing with that. And um, I kind of, that sort of idea of um, do you want to be the one who's going to have to teach people or, or to kind of be there with their projections? And it's kind of, um, it's such double-edged sword because you want that to happen but the personal cost is too big it is and I think that's why change I mean yeah I think that's why change takes so long because somebody has to I mean I don't know any other way to change organizations and cultures if you are not kind of widening and diversifying yeah exactly but at what cost at what price um and generally that's what kept me going for so long because I was just like well I'm, I'm part of the the change but at what cost at what price um, well you've done your bit 
I mean, I think it's really something about in all those areas that need to have change, um, there needs to be a lot of us. And what you said to your daughter about it's not her job to fix racism is absolutely not because yeah. it's, 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 it's more, it's more our job as in white people. Um, and how does it, I mean, that's a very like expansive, joyful decision. And from a, from a kind of a, if we think about trauma as contraction and, um, healing as an expansive thing, that's like really welcoming in so much. I, I really love like hearing that. And how have your own, um, like the ways that you learn to keep yourself safe as a child, the coping strategies, I can hear how mm-hmm. that's impacted mothering in terms of really being busy. What other coping strategies did you learn as a child and how has that kind of come into your motherhood and Ooh. how has that influenced your expectations of yourself about how you need to be as a mother? I like that question. That's a great question. Um Coping strategies. So one of the things that I do well um, as a child, again, as a, as the only child of a, of a, of a mom, of a, a single parent, sorry, I was thinking of that word, um, is charming. Like charm offensive was one of my coping strategies and being able to hang with adults, being able to be, because my mom would sometimes have to take me around. Um, so being able to be charming at being grown too soon. Yeah. So like being able to be independent, resilient, hold 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 a conversation, literally hold the dinner toilet sometimes. Oh. <laughs> like you do <laughs> your mom would be busy and you're like, oh, when can I say oh oh, oh that's got like re- yeah. those things. Um and how that comes into my parenthood. Um and actually I think about it more in terms of my son again. I think, and this is the nature nurture debate, because I do think with my children, what I have done, like, back to what I was saying about that child-centered lens um, and being, I've given them permission to be children first. I'm not trying to raise them up to be the next adult, even though I'm like, I, I talked to my husband about the values and the kind of adults we want to be, them to be one of the things is also that their childhood is now. Um, yeah. They, they don't get another childhood. They get only this childhood. But I do think my son is inherent a pleaser and i and so many of my of my childhood on what, what i was like a child um i see i see more in him than i do in me so he will read the room like as i said and he will be like um i don't know no trying to pick the right time to to get his needs met or say what when what he wants um and i has it's a conscious effort to say you have permission to say, and that's why he's even more quiet than he is. Cause I, like his first nursery, I changed the setting for, um, for long, for long reasons, but his first, um, nursery setting for, thought, I can't speak, thought he couldn't talk because I, I've given him, the oh. he doesn't have to. Um, so that's one of the things I've made a conscious effort to kind of like, you don't have to. You can obviously, I'm not saying there's a thin line between not being rude and actually saying hello to people. You can say hello, but if you don't want to engage in conversation, you don't have to. Yeah. Uh, so he's very much quiet, but I know that my, that as a coping strategy as a child, I had to charm. I had to be yeah. dynamic, interactive and engaging to children, um, to adults. Um, so when adults come to our home, the daughter is probably the entertainer and like, hi, da, 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 da. and they're like, why is he not talking? I was like, he said hello. <laughs> like, you, you got your hello. Um, so, but I do think the coping strategy I keep, I still keep is this idea of charming and, and pleasing, that, you know, yeah. like that. Yes, farming and pleasing. But I'm a fauna. 
that fight, flight, freeze uh, response. I will fawn my way and I will charm my way. Even in the face of like microaggression sometimes, it comes sometimes consciously without thinking I'll smile in it. And I'm like, why am I smiling? Mm. That wasn't funny. And it, it takes me a moment to go, actually, sorry, what you said. And that person on the other end is also confused because they're like, you smiled a minute ago. And I was like, yeah, because sometimes it's an automatic innate. It is. What? My body is just so used to doing yeah. it. And then my brain catches up and it's like, wait, what are you doing? And then I, I do that. So I think for me, um, that's one of the things I'm working on, not to fawn, yeah. not to charm, not to kind of please and sugarcoat things and, and make things palatable for people. Um, and I think it's about leaning into my authenticity and kind of embracing that, like literally holding that. Because there are moments that I see and it's about how I feel. So the feedback I get, my literally my, my yeah. body, the feedback I get physically in any interactions tells me whether I'm fawning or whether I'm being authentic. Um, and I try and lean into that both with my parenting and, and with my cho- in my in my own independent choices about actually that's my constant battle. Yeah, wherever I am in whatever space I am, I always want to be authentic. And again, giving that to my children that wherever you are, you are you first. Your needs need to be met first. Again, you can selfish not in a bad way like you can be selfish like I think sometimes that word gets um a stigma attached to it but I actually think there's something about being selfish and self like self-full caring for yourself first of yourself having an awareness of yourself and then you can be the best version of whatever you need to be for other people oh I totally agree Kim. I mean I don't think I mean I've had a lot of recovery in in um, codependency, and I'm also a fauna, and so um, I absolutely agree with you that being I don't think it's selfish to meet our own needs. I think that's an absolute. Um, I think that's a patriarchal message, actually that um, that yeah. it's, that we kind of always need to be serving others. But um, and that thing about fawning, because what you said about you have to be in touch with your body, because when we're fawning from a nervous system point of view, they are sending us signs of danger. And then we yes. send them signs of safety to make it okay. And so really we have to tolerate that discomfort in our body and kind of translate it in the moment so that we can actually go, hey man, like that's not okay. Stop saying that sort of thing to me or, or whatever. And how do you kind of soothe yourself in those moments? Because it is when everything in our body is screaming, you've got to do this habitual pattern. Like the change happens in those little moments where you just say that was really out of order or something. Like, how do you um, kind of actually soothe yourself? I think it's slowing things down. It could be slowing things down in terms of my breath. It could be slowing things down in terms of give me a moment. I'll come back to you on that. It could be. So if it's an even in an email, it, sometimes I physically walk away from the laptop. Yeah. Um, and there's many emails because I think the work culture and email culture can be really like people just forget. That there's a human on the other on the other end of of that email you're sending, um, it could be literally closing the laptop, taking a moment, stepping away, and then coming back to it. Um, it's how I comfort myself, and I think the one of the biggest way I comfort myself is giving myself permission to go back. So even if I smiled, and even if I said allowed it, quote unquote allowed it in some way, it's okay to go back and say actually that's not okay. Um, and and there was a time I didn't used to go back. I used to kind of, and that's why I needed to go back actually because there were the, 
uh, yeah, there were years ago where I wouldn't go back. And you know how you keep playing the same scene over and over and over again, all the things you should have said. So I do, I never want to be left with that residue. I don't want to carry that emotional residue with me. I want to give it back to the person. Um, so even if, as I said, in that moment I phoned um, and I've pleased you and I've made it palatable for you. And if I actually think, actually, I'm still carrying this and it, does, it doesn't belong to me. It's what I was saying to my daughter, that the racism doesn't belong to her. I'm going to give it back to the person. I'm going to return to sender. Um, so that's how I kind of co- like um, soothe myself because I need to be able to give it back. And then I, I then I affirm myself. Then I can process and think about that react interaction yeah. and think about my part in it and, and what what I need to correct and what I don't need to correct. And that's what going back to what I said in the beginning about the constructive criticism and feedback I got from my mom. That's where it's actually has actually been helpful because I know my strengths well and I know my weaknesses well. So when somebody's giving me something that doesn't belong to me, I'm like, mm, doesn't feel right. That's yours. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, that doesn't belong and I to guess me. that thing about knowing our weaknesses well and knowing our strengths means that um, <clears throat> there's something about not collapsing in the face of, the face of our weaknesses. Because I think when we when we had to learn, when we learned to be perfectionist, any sort of um, sign of imperfection or weakness, we often collapse and actually we can really welcome in all parts of us. Now, I'm really just conscious about the time. And um, I wondered um, if you wanted to give us any words about how you bring in more self-compassion or ease or anything else that you'd like um, to share with us about your mothering and how you've brought in more ease and and joy for yourself. I think, again, thinking back to the things, I was having a conversation with a friend who's got a teenage um, child who's like exploring relationships and dating. Um, And we were just talking, and I was just kind of wondering how I'm going to kind of broach that chapter whenever it comes. Um, And I think it is about dating yourself first. I know it sounds like a cliche, and I think it's about spending that time. If there's anything I want to kind of leave everyone with, it's about self-compassion begins with getting to know who you are. Really invest in who you are, uh, what kind of, and listen to your bodily cues, listen to the things or the situations and the environments or the individuals that makes you feel all tense or makes you feel butterflies in your tummy or makes you feel excited, makes you feel relaxed. Where are you at your best? Where are you at your most relaxed? And leaning towards that and get more of that. And I think that inevitably feeds into your parenting. I think if I am looking after myself for myself first not to be the best parent so I'm really mindful of not saying that exactly you're not kind of you're not looking after yourself just to be the best parent you're looking after yourself first because you matter you are genuine you matter you're the most important person in your life you are literally going to be with you your whole journey so when you look after yourself first I think it then has a ricochet effect on everything and I think if you if you're new to it and you haven't started, see it as an information gathering ex- exercise. So that's one of the things I'd leave. So just kind of pause, slow things down, just notice. Notice when you're happy. Notice when you're not. Notice when you're relaxed. Notice when you're tense, and 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 gather that information. Literally write it down, um, and then that's the first step to self compassion. Um, and the other thing I would say is that we are all trying to figure this this ish out. I was going to swear. <laughs> swear away, Timmy. I'm a, okay, I'm a massive swearer. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're all in it together. We're all, tra- nobody's got their shit together as much as they claim they do. Um, we're all trying to, so be kind to yourself. I think be really kind to yourself and allow yourself room to grow because 
you're human and you're going to make mistakes, but you're going to grow yeah. from those mistakes. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. Um, uh, it's been just really such a pleasure. And um, so that's really exciting news about your private practice. So do you want to tell us how, so your, your, um, your Insta handle and all your social media details and um, will be in the show notes. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about, so from April, people can approach you to work with you or have their children? Um, actually, from March. So from mid-March onwards. Um, so, yeah, I am a therapist, uh, first and foremost, with my many hats. Um, so I work with young people online, um, predominantly 9 to 21, um, what, um, roughly because it's online. Um, but I will also assess according to suitability for online. Um, so I work with young people. I also am a clinical supervisor for therapists and counsellors and all the things in between, including actually um, recently I've done a couple of, or more than a couple of, of senior leaderships, um, members of senior leadership in schools. Um, and then I also work with schools and organisation in terms of delivering training, consultancy and speaking events around being a more culturally sensitive, competent and inclusive organisation. Um, so again, many hats. <laughs> yeah, so I can, I'm therapy with Kemi across all of my handles and they can reach me on kemiomija.com. Okay, com. That will all be on the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Kemi. It's been such a pleasure. Take really good care. Thank you, Ka. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.